According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, which I had hoped we would wrap up before the end of the year, so that means uh, today. (laughs) (laughs) Hebrews chapter 11, and really, uh, verses 32 through 40 are a, uh, a hurry or a rush. And it's only appropriate maybe that I preach this in a hurry, preach this in a rush, because that's how it was written. The author, uh, having gone through everything up through verse 31, we dealt with Rahab the harlot last week. Verse 32 says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me. And like all the truly great preachers of church history, you just, there's only so much time, and you run out of time. And then you just start throwing names out there in a, in a string, and in knowing that the readers have a frame of reference to understand at least many of the issues that are present here. Time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings, scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy." wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God has provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. All right, so we've got a lot to cover. Let's start with a word of prayer and ask our Father's faithfulness for our study today, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your truth, and rejoicing for the heritage that we have, the heritage in the Word of God, and also in the former generations and the former dispensations, the former stewardships where believers walked by faith, and uh, the uh, testimony that they received. Everybody named in this chapter received a testimony that they were walking by faith, And we, Father, are to imitate that, and we are to do so much more, because we've been given so much more. They walked by faith, were to walk by faith. They never received what they were promised. And I pray that we understand the uh, blessing that it is to walk by faith, not because of a promise, not because of what we get or receive, but because our Savior is worthy. And I pray that we would be occupied on Him as we understand these truths. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so I advance my slideshow to the proper place. There we are. Hebrews 11, 32 through 34. What more shall I say for time will fail me? Now, how much time did he have and what kind of hurry was he in anyway? You know, if uh, are you being timed when you're writing a book of the Bible? (laughs) Uh, You know, he has all the time he wants. If he wanted to write 15 more chapters, he could have kept writing. But he's coming under a sense of conviction. He's coming under a sense of urgency that this chapter is long enough and he's got to tie it together and he's got to wrap up this epistle and he's got to get it put in the hands of a scribe and a a courier has to carry it to where it's going. Remember, there's no Twitter, there's no Facebook, there's no email. And uh, for the recipients of of the book of Hebrews to receive the book of Hebrews for the first time ever, Feet have to travel. You have to walk it. You have to take it to where it's going. And, uh, and then when it gets there, they're going to start making copies of it. In fact, I suspect they made multiple copies before the first courier even set out that, uh, as far as that goes. But time is running out. 
Now, repetition is always edifying, but there is only so much time and there's only so much parchment. You realize that there's more that could be said. You have to be judicious in what's communicated and how it's communicated. While edification, while repetition is always edifying, there is only so much time and there's only so much parchment. And uh, the author of Hebrews is confessing that here when he confesses to being out of time. Uh, we all need to recognize that. These are fundamental principles to how we live our Christian walk. Um, he doesn't mind. I mean, look, look at all the people he's walked him through already in the first 31 verses from, uh, you know, uh, Abel to Enoch to Noah to Abraham, and then on the way through the rest of the, the rest of the Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, uh, we get to, uh, we didn't quite get to Ruth, we got to Rahab. Um, but he's doing this walk through the Old Testament, and then he says, all right, that's enough. We've got to, we've got to press on. And so he then summarizes what follows. And he starts to kind of give a big picture of what the, the whole impact of the chapter should be, is these are heroes, men of whom the world is not worthy. That believers walking by faith, living their lives according to the Word of God, they're the real heroes of this place, of this, of this planet, of this world. And the world will have other standards for, for what they exalt and what they celebrate. Um, I've yet to observe this world building a hall of fame for faith believers, right? The ba- there's a baseball hall of fame in Cooperstown, and there's a, there's a football hall of fame in Canton, and there's a basketball hall of fame in somewhere, Springfield or wherever. They've got halls of fame. I imagine hockey's got a hall of fame too, if, if you follow that. But where is the hall of fame for doctrinal believers walking by faith? Okay? It's not on this earth, I'll tell you that, but the records are being kept in heaven. And this chapter is an exhibit of that hall of fame. And that's why we call it the hall of fame of faith as far as Hebrews chapter 11 is concerned. So in uh, running out of time and moving on, uh, the author is going to do us a favor here. We can do ourselves a favor as well if we match his urgency with an urgency of our own and, uh, and kind of rush through the end of the chapter. You think? <laughs> or we can thwart the author's intention and we can slug our way through the end of the chapter in uh, eight or ten more messages. How about that? Well, um, I love the repetition, and here's my favorite repetition verses include Philippians 3.1, which you might recall. We were in Philippians not that long ago. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. So repetitions, Paul says, hey, it doesn't hurt me at all. It doesn't bother me to write the same thing down another a second time, a third time, a fourth time. And the more you read it, the more you hear it, it is a protection. It is a safeguard. Second Peter 1, you get Peter's uh, philosophy of repetition. <clears throat> Second Peter 1, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. And that was Peter's philosophy. He says, hey, I'm still alive. Let's, let's go through this again. <laughs> and uh, even though you know it, I'm not saying you don't know it. I'm not saying you forgot it. But it's, it's worth looking at again. The repetition is always edifying. However, according to Ecclesiastes 3.1, there is a time for everything. There is a season. There is a time and uh, a time to... Uh, repeat in a time to not repeat. <laughs> okay, And so according to that principle, then uh, there comes a time that you have to stop this Old Testament survey and then rush to the end of the chapter. And that's where the author of Hebrews finds himself here. Because there's only so much time and there's only so much parchment. In fact, uh, John says this when trying to write about the life of Jesus. He says all the paper in the world wouldn't, uh, you know, couldn't tell the whole story. John twenty one twenty five. There are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. And imagine that, you know, and however much hyperbole uh, John allowed himself to express in that. I wonder what he would think today with our electronic books and our Kindles. And, uh, and how many books do I have in my pocket right now? I just pull out my phone and my entire Logos library is available to me on my phone. So things like that would have probably boggled the uh, Apostle John more than anything. But this is where we are in the chapter. 
If you want to uh, get more uh, background on this, you'll find it in the book of Judges. These uh, early characters that are mentioned, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, those are all judges that are referenced here in Hebrews 11. When he says, what more shall I say? For time will fail me. And the first four that he mentions here are all judges. Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. Interestingly enough, Samuel would also make that list as he's considered the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. But he's kind of set apart in the author's listing and David actually gets listed in front of Samuel. And so you kind of wonder, clearly the author's in a hurry and clearly he's throwing names out there. Uh, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and uh, that's not entirely in order anyway because Barak preceded Gideon. And so, yeah, they're slightly out of order there. And then by front-loading David and putting Samuel to the end, it's pretty clear that the author's in a hurry and he's just throwing these names out there, (laughs) okay? And maybe not in the order he would have put them in had he slowed down and done a rewrite and given each of these people their own verses as he did with the previous verses. But if you want uh, to turn in the book of Judges, you're going to find the story of Gideon beginning in chapter 6 and going down to the end of chapter 8. So uh, 6.11 through 8.32, and uh, that encompasses the bulk of chapter 6, all of chapter 7, and all of chapter 8, and the, and the stories there. Not only Gideon by that name, but he also had another name and, and other ways that he was referred to in that, uh, in that context. And uh, it might be worth just uh, a little fellowship time amongst ourselves, perhaps on uh, Tuesday when we're sitting around the, the, the table and, and uh, fellowshipping that uh, we could spend time amongst ourselves. Uh, what's your favorite Gideon story? What's, what do you glean out of, out of the story of Gideon? Or what do you glean out of Barak? Because really, uh, why is Deborah not even being mentioned here in this chapter? She did all the work. Barak was kind of the illustration of, of what should be done and didn't do it, and Deborah had to do it. And uh, you can read about that in Judges chapter 4 and 5. And so I'm personally offended, by the way, that Deborah's name is not uh, written in, in uh, Hebrews 11 the way Barak's name is written. But then I have to get over it because I can't get offended by anything God wrote. But there it is. Why, is. why is her name not there and Barak's name is? Samson, chapter 13 through 16. And, and the story of Samson is, uh, what a loser, <laughs> you know? And, and everything he did, he did wrong, basically. And uh, how sad is it that at the end of his life, he fi- I think he dies of the sin unto death, but in the final moment of his life, he does manage to kill a bunch of, of Philistines as he pulls the temple down over his head. And, and, and usually it's taught as a suicide, one of the, the suicides that are found in Scripture. And what a sad example. And we say, well, where was the faith of Samson? Well, he's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 among these heroes of faith and the things that they did by faith. And so in spite of everything else he did wrong, from the, the harlot that he marries and all the other stuff that he did is wrong, defying God and defying his vows and all these things, at the end of his life, by faith, he delivered Israel. He had a, such a defeat over the Philistine lords that the, the Jewish people were rescued from the Philistines for a period of time. And then there's Jephthah and the child sacrifice of his own daughter. And you think, Wow. And uh, we think it was most likely not a literal child sacrifice, that it was some kind of other sacrifice kind of loss, that uh, she uh, was dedicated to temple service, most likely. That, uh, but still, it was of such a thing that she was weeping for her virginity, that she would never have a normal marriage, she would never have children, that uh, all of the, the blessings that Jephthah might expect in walking his daughter down the aisle and, and uh, seeing another generation and seeing grandchildren. None of that was going to happen in Jephthah's case. And uh, you can read about that in Judges chapter 11 and the first few verses of chapter 12. And so saving some time here today, not going to be reading all those chapters in Judges. You can read those on your own and I can assign that as homework. If you want to hear about David and Samuel, you've got even more reading to do. Because now you're going to read Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. And this is kind of an interesting way 
to just think your way through, meditate your way through the books, meditate your way through each chapter of each book as the author of Hebrews is taking us through an Old Testament survey. And by starting with um, Abel, by starting with Genesis and ending with Chronicles, he's essentially taking his readers through the entire Old Testament. He's taking his readers, remember they had a different order in their books than we do, they didn't say Genesis to Malachi, they would say Torah to Chronicles as they had the, the law, the writings, uh, the prophets and the writings. Anyway, Samuel, Kings and Chronicles contain the stories of Samuel and David as well as several prophets that uh, either had or didn't have Old Testament books of their own. So when you read Samuel, Kings and Chronicles you're going to get uh, David, you're going to get Samuel, you're going to get many of the Old Testament prophets that are featured uh, in, uh, in those books. So for Samuel, starting in 1 Samuel 1 and taking you through 25, 1, Samuel's a tricky one. <laughs> and you'll see why. Because it starts before he's born. I'll just clue you into some things that you can celebrate when you get to your reading. How about that? In 1 Samuel... And probably originally, First and Second Samuel was a single book, as was First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Those those scrolls were originally single um, single scrolls that got split. Uh, I think functionally they got split with the Septuagint. When they got translated into Greek, uh, they ended up getting split into into two scrolls. But in First Samuel, the story of Samuel begins before he's even born, because his mother is praying for him praying for a child, and the high priest thinks she's drunk, and uh, she's not drunk, and then she finally gets the child she's been praying for, and she dedicates him for priestly service. And uh, that, that's a key chapter to read. I think it helps us, it helps explain the Jephthah situation as well related to dedication to priestly service. And then all the way through First Samuel and all the things that are happening with the uh, the deliverance as the last judge, but then anointing the first king, because the people are demanding a king. They're they're tired of all the judges, and uh, they think no one's going to come along better than Samuel anyway. So let's you know they're going to be done with the judges. They want a king, and Samuel anoints the first king. He anoints the first two kings, and this sets him up now as like I say, not only the last of the judges, but also the first of the prophets, because prophets would have a role anointing kings and ministering to kings uh, from this point forward. When you get to chapter 25 and Samuel dies, you think, wow, I've read 25 chapters of 1 Samuel. <laughs> and, and he's not in every single chapter, but he's in a lot of them. And he's featured uh, along with Saul and along with David and in other capacities in different ways. Uh, also his sons are featured, and that's kind of a sad story too. Because Samuel was a great hero, but his sons were, were terrible. And uh, we read in 1 Samuel 25, 1, Samuel died and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And you think, okay, that's it. We're done with the, the story of Samuel. But very uniquely, uh, there's actually more about Samuel because there's a narrative after he's dead. There's a narrative that you read about in chapter 28 where King Saul consults a witch and he actually tries to, with, with sorcery, with demonic uh, powers, with demonic magical powers, attempts to communicate with the dead. And the witch actually, I, I think she was more surprised than anything, she was probably a charlatan more than anything, but you know, on this event she got the real Samuel. And it scared her to death. <laughs> I mean, my suspicion is is that she regularly communed with demons anyway, and then they would they would masquerade and they would pose and they would pretend, you know, to be the spirit of whoever. But in this event, when you read about it, she gets the real Samuel, who is disturbed from his sleep, is disturbed from his rest, and he has more to preach and he has more to prophesy and he has more ministry after he's dead. It's the only believer ever in, uh, the, in the history of humanity that actually bore fruit after his physical death. The rest of us, uh, any fruit that we, any treasure we lay up in heaven has to be done before we die. Uh, but, uh, and then we get judged uh, on based on what we did in this life. Uh, we get rewarded for the next life. 
Samuel is the only one we have anywhere revealed in the Bible who edified, who taught, who communicated the Word of God and bore fruit after his physical death here to the land of the living. So you'll enjoy that as you read through that. David, of course, um, David gets a couple of previews before we're finally introduced to him. And so a lot of people would just start the story of David with First uh, Samuel chapter 16. And so there you see how it overlaps quite a bit with, with Samuel. But uh, David actually gets referenced a couple of times before he's even introduced. And these come in the uh, little glimpses uh, when Saul is being rebuked. Uh, we're told in 1 Samuel 13, 14, a little glimmer about David there. When Samuel is rebuking Saul, and he says, Now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So uh, you're, you're welcome. I want to bless you with this this morning. If you've ever struggled to try to find where is that verse that says David was a man after God's own heart, and you begin reading in 1 Samuel chapter 16 because you think, well, that's where D- David gets introduced, you're going to be thwarted because it's a preview of David's introduction, and it's mentioned in chapter 13. There's another preview in chapter 15 and verse 28 when the robe gets ripped. Samuel turned to go and Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore, tore the prophet's robe. And so Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you, who is better than you. (laughs) And that haunted Saul for the rest of his life. Those words absolutely haunted him and he developed a a tremendous uh, jealousy and bitterness and resentment and uh, a hatred for David down the road. But these words when the prophet said, your neighbor who is better than you, uh, that's another uh, kind of a preview for the life of David. But then you start in 1 Samuel 16, 1, and you're going you're gonna to go quite a ways. David occupies a, 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 a central part of our Old Testament. Uh, all the way through the end of 1 Samuel, all of 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, you get all of chapter 1 and down to verse 11 of chapter 2 uh, for the death of uh, David and then the handover to Solomon. So how much is that? That's a ton. That is a huge chunk. And that's just narrative about David. Then it gets repeated in Chronicles. Remember, Chronicles is largely parallel to Samuel and Kings. It's just parallel to Samuel and Kings from the priestly perspective. And it stresses many of the things that are Levitical and priestly that are uh, repeating the things that were already told in Samuel and Kings. So the narrative of David in in 1 Chronicles takes you from 1 Chronicles 11 all the way to the end of 1 Chronicles 29. So uh, I forgot to add up the number of chapters on that, but that's a ton of chapters. That's a ton of our Old Testament is centered in David. We thought Moses had a lot of the Old Testament with with how he was featured in, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But uh, David outdoes Moses as far as his Old Testament uh, coverage is concerned. Not to mention half of the Psalms that David wrote. (laughs) So there's again an even greater chunk of our Old Testament is Davidic in uh, either uh, content or authorship. Plus the other prophets. The other prophets. Um, When we're talking about Elijah and Elisha, that's in 1st and 2nd Kings, when we're talking about uh, Isaiah and his ministry was contemporaneous with Hezekiah. You're going to find that in 2 Kings. We have all these prophets, many of which don't even have books of the Bible, uh, uh, Micaiah and some of these other prophets that are mentioned in, in Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. And so really what's happening here, essentially then, these verses encompass the entirety of the Hebrew canon. With the, with the uh, author is doing when he says, man, I've got to hurry up this chapter, He's just tying together what we call the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the uh, Hebrew canon of Scripture, which the Jewish people to this very day still call the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, or the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Kathuvim, as far as that goes. Yes, sir? Uh, we have traditional sources for 
Oh, okay. So there are Grace Notes courses available. If any of these books you want to do a Grace Notes course on, those Grace Notes courses are available. Every Prophet, Samuel, Kings, not yet Chronicles. Working on Chronicles. Chronicles is a tough book. All right. But if you want a definition, Jesus used it in uh, Luke 24. And he talks about a comprehensive study of the Scriptures. Luke 24. And in verse 27 and in verse 44, it gets restated a couple of times in a couple of different ways. But after his resurrection, he appeared to a couple of men on the Emmaus Road. Remember the walk to Emmaus. And he encounters these men on the Emmaus Road. And they've got all kinds of questions, but he's going to answer those questions. He's going to do so, though, systematically. He says, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. So from Moses to the prophets, that's a systematic Bible exposition, and Jesus is giving it to these men in Emmaus, these men on, on Resurrection Sunday. It's expressed even more comprehensively down in verse 44, talking to the disciples in the upper room. He, he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And we have a threefold division of scripture there that Jesus himself testifies to, the law, the prophets, and the writings. The, uh, and, and this is what we do. We comprehensively study the Scripture. And if we ignore one portion of it, we're negligent in rightly dividing the Word of Truth. And if we think that, oh, well, we just the only thing the church needs is just the Pauline epistles. Wrong. We need the whole counsel of the Word of God. We need the Pauline epistles. We need the non-Pauline epistles. We need Hebrews. We need Peter. We need First, Second, Third John. We need the Gospels. We need that book of Acts. And we're not throwing away our Old Testament either just because we're church-age believer priests. We have the Greek canon added to the Hebrew canon. We're not replacing the Hebrew canon. And if we don't get anything else out of Hebrews 11, we should at least get this, that Hebrews 11 is a systematic development of the Old Testament for church-age application. That we will, we will embrace the summary statement that if those men are men of whom the world is not worthy, men and women, if those Old Testament he uh, heroes, uh, if this world is not worthy of them, but they fall under us, that's what the chapter is going to conclude. They need us. Apart from us, they cannot be made perfect. So is the world worthy of us? And are we walking as if this world is not worthy of us? Are we walking in a manner worthy of our Savior, like we're commanded to do? This chapter has a, has a powerful application for us in the church age, and this chapter is entirely developed out of the Old Testament. So we don't throw away our Old Testaments. We need our Old Testaments. We teach them, we learn the stories, but then we draw the greater applications for us in the body of Christ. And that's, that's the point of the exercise. And so, again, in Luke 24, 44, he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be plerao, must be fulfilled. And we're going to have some plerao, pleroma studies coming up in Colossians and, and uh, in other things, so stay tuned for that. But it doesn't say most, it says all. Everything gets fulfilled. Jesus is not Nostradamus who can get you know, one prophecy right for every 10 he gets wrong and he's praised by, ooh, look at all these things. And even the few that we think he got right were so vague they could have been anything else anyway. So it's only wishful thinking that makes them halfway kind of sort of true. No, Scripture, biblical prophecy is 100% correct. When he says a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, you know what happened? A virgin conceived and bore a son. How about that? And all the things that were prophesied literally took place. The things that were prophesied that haven't happened yet, we're relaxed about those because they're going to happen. They're still prophesied. They're still going to happen. The Jews will still have a seven-year tribulation. There will still be a king of David seated on David's throne. 
the yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecies. Don't call them unfulfilled. Call them yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecies. Because 100% of them are fulfilled eventually in God's perfect timing. In the interest of haste, the author stops naming names and starts citing faith testimonies. The recipients are expected to know these testimonies already and be able to connect them for themselves. So we can play a game this morning. We're going to play Connect the Dots. We're going to connect the names with the events. And because uh, we should do just fine with this. But he says, I'm running out of time. And so after rattling off Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, he then starts talking about deeds who by faith conquered kingdoms. Now who did that? Who by faith conquered a kingdom? David, Joshua, the conquest there, 31 kings. Moses, even before uh, that he had a, uh, as an Egyptian, there was victory that he'd had there, but then other uh, kingdoms in the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings when they conquered and and uh, Moses needed help to keep his arms up. But conquering kingdoms, that is a ministry. That is an assignment that God assigns, and those believers achieved them by faith. Performed acts of righteousness. Well, there's too many to count, but keep in mind, it's not just doing good deeds and doing nice things, and an unbeliever can do nice things. Unbelievers have righteousness. It's just right, human righteousness. It's a righteousness like a filthy rag, and God says he wants nothing to do with it. But only God's kind of righteousness and the deed of God's kind of righteousness gives Him the glory. And, and it can only be done by faith. Remember, without faith it's impossible to please God. And so performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises. Uh, Samuel's mother's an example there. Hannah obtained a promise and she gave birth to a son. And she did so by faith. Shut the mouths of lions. That's an easy one. We could make this a game on Tuesday night. We could do this in our New Year's Eve potluck. And, in, and show me somebody besides Daniel. Daniel doesn't count. He's too easy. All right. What other examples do we have for shut the mouths of lions? And um, quenched the power of fire. Again, there's an easy one there with the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. The uh, escaped the uh, edge of the sword. That's a lot of places. From weakness were made strong. That's a lot of places. Samson, obviously, but others. Became mighty in war. A lot of examples. Gideon and Jephthah and most of the judges. King Saul. Put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. There were three in the Old Testament. Elijah raised one. Elisha raised two. Remember he had a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And although one of them, to be fair, one of the ones that Elisha raised was after Elisha himself was dead. There's somebody else that had a post-mortem work of uh, faith. <laughs> because when that body hit Elisha's dead bones, he came back to life. Received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release so they might obtain a better resurrection. There are things worse than dying. And being faithful until death and maintaining your testimony at uh, the better resurrection rather than compromising in, uh, in your faith. Others experienced mockings. Remember uh, Elisha, the, the, the gangbangers there, the thugs, I call them, the, 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 the young men, they're calling them baldy, baldy, go up old bald head. And, and, uh, and the, the, Elisha called for these bears, these she-bears came out and, and ate 42 of those, of those hoodlums. That would take care of our gang issues, I think, on the streets today. In, uh, not that I'm advocating such a thing, but I'm just talking about the consequences. <laughs> well, um, mockings, scourgings, chains, imprisonments. How many times was Jeremiah thrown down a well or put in chains or locked up. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Now that's not in the Old Testament, but it's a legend, it's a tradition among the Jewish people that that was uh, Isaiah's uh, final demise. The prophet Isaiah was sawn in two. 
They were tempted, they were uh, like Joseph and Potiphar's wife and others, put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. That was the Elijah mode. Being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, you know, nobody's going to feed you so the birds show up and in uh, the ravens that bring Elijah his meals. Men of whom the world was not worthy. There's a statement, I'll tell you. When we, when we relate worthiness and God's viewpoint versus the world's viewpoint, wandering in deserts like John the Baptist, mountains, caves, holes in the ground. <laughs> you know, Jesus said, uh, you know, princes live in palaces and wear the soft clothing. You know, who did you go out to see when all of Jerusalem was all excited about, about John the Baptist? You know, people get excited about stuff. The, the latest movement, the latest book, the latest craze on the radio, and here comes another whatever, some purpose-driven comes up, or then some Jabez prayer comes up, or some other kind of fad, evangelical fad comes sweeping through, and they come and they go, so many that you can't even remember them. And then until someone mentions them, you go, oh yeah, I forgot that that used to be a thing. And John the Baptist was one of those, and the whole, the crowds were going out, crowds are going out, look at this guy. He eats locusts and wild honey and he wears camel skins and he's baptizing people in the Jordan. And Jesus called him on it when he said, what did you, what were you going out to see? You thought it was some entertainment, didn't you? And uh, and aspects there. And and Jesus said, he's the greatest of those born among women was John the Baptist. So um, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. I mean, David was hiding in caves every time Saul was trying to kill him. He had to go hide in a cave somewhere. So, in the interest of haste, the author stops naming names and starts citing faith testimonies. And the recipients are expected to know these testimonies already and be able to connect them for themselves. Now, talking about resurrections... I think this is uh, this is important for us too. I mentioned a little bit ago the Old Testament records three resurrections. I refer to I prefer to them as resuscitations, but because uh, Hebrews eleven does use the word resurrection here, I don't really take great issue with it. If women received back their dead by resurrection, that's what it was. But it was not resurrection to a body of glory, an immortal body that's uh, like conformed to the image of Jesus and his resurrection body. But they were resuscitations of living physical bodies. And uh, these stories are found, 1 Kings 17. First Kings 17, and this is Elijah, verses 17 through 24. And let's see here. It came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his uh, sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to, uh, to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. And he said to her, give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. And he called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then, uh, of course, there were many widows in uh, Israel at this time, but this is the one to whom God sent Elijah. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times, called the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. Restored to physical life. He wasn't glorified. He's not in a resurrection body. He's not conformed to the resurrected glory of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. So Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now it's curious to me, this is the very first recorded example of such a thing ever happening. 
When, when Abraham sacrificed Isaac, he assumed, he presumed, he by faith understood that God could bring Elijah back, could bring Isaac back from the dead if he had to. But he never had to because Abraham never had to kill Isaac. Remember? There was a ram caught in the thicket. Isaac didn't die. But Abraham assumed that God could bring somebody back from the dead if he wanted to. But this is the first time it ever actually happened that, uh, that a prophet stood and prayed to the Lord and, and, uh, and brought somebody back to physical life. Elisha brings two back. 2 Kings chapter 4. When you go from 1 Kings to 2 Kings, you're switching from Elijah to Elisha. Yeah. In round numbers, okay? You do have Elijah in the first two chapters of 2 Kings. But in 2 Kings chapter 4, there's a widow here and her oil's running out. And... Uh, Get down to verse 18. This child uh, was prophesied and then uh, born the following year. In verse 14, Gehazi says, Truly she has no son, her husband is old. So he said, Call her. When he called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, At this season next year you will embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. You will hug, you will embrace a son. Some legends say this is the birth of, of Habakkuk, the hugger, but I think the timing on that is not, not, not good. Anyway, she conceived, she bore a son, and now we have uh, this child who dies. The child was grown, the day came that he went out to his father, to the reapers, and he said to his father, my head, my head. And he said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And, uh, and here it is. And then you can imagine, here's a, here's a magic baby. Here's a miracle baby, prophesied. And, uh, and the, a gift from the Lord, prophesied by the prophet. And, and now he's just going to die. Is that, the only reason you gave him to me is that so you could take him away? You can imagine it's quite a test of faith. And uh, Elisha is going to uh, do the miracle here to bring the son back. Then the third one, as I mentioned, is uh, when they threw the body into the grave. That's found in 2 Kings chapter 13 and verse 21. Kind of a post-mortem miracle on the part of Elisha. Elisha died and they buried him. And the bands of the the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year. And as they were burying a man, behold, they saw a marauding uh, band and they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived, stood up on his feet. <clears throat> so anyway, this is all kind of interesting in the way that if you ever think about Elijah and Elisha combined to tell the picture of Jesus, because Elijah raises one, Elisha raises two, Jesus raises three in his life. And with the recognition that one of those miracles gets done after Elisha dies, understand that Jesus, uh, his death doesn't end his ministry either, that he has a post-death uh, ministry and resurrection ministry and different things that you can do with that. <clears throat> All right. Better resurrection. What is a better resurrection? Well, this speaks to greater rewards for greater faithfulness. Some women received, uh, did not receive release. That uh, they did not have their sons restored to them. That they had to grieve through the process of losing a child. And others willingly allowed themselves to be martyred. And does that mean that, uh, that they had less faith? Does that mean so those that were, that were eaten by lions had less faith than Daniel because, uh, because uh, God shut the lion's mouth? The fact is, if we are faithful until death, we do receive the reward for dying in the dying grace that he assigns to us. And it's called a better resurrection. And can you imagine when you compromise your faith and you deny your Savior and you recant uh, so you can save your, your scrawny little neck, and then after you die, you have to stand before the one that 
gave his life for your eternal life. You understand why he's going to be wiping away tears? We're going to have some tears when we get there. But we have this expression, better resurrection. And I think we can connect it pretty well uh, in Revelation 2 when we talk about be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. That there are rewards for faithfulness. If we don't draw a line in the sand, if we don't say here and no more, if we do the last full measure, as the expression says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. So whatever it is, God knows about it ahead of time and he's going to let it happen. So celebrate, right? Not because the devil's doing what the devil's doing, but because God's doing what God's doing. And whatever the devil does, he does for his own reasons. But whatever God permits, he's permitting for God's reasons, not the devil's reasons. So when who cares what Satan's going to do and the reasons why? <clears throat> when God allows it, like in the book of Job, when God allows it, God's got a purpose for it. So be faithful until death. Don't stop walking by faith because this event is part of your walk. Right? It's not an accident. It's not, a, it's not uh, outside of the will of God. It's not something that Satan is doing and God is helpless to keep it from happening. God is allowing it to happen. And with the test, he's providing the victorious conclusion. The ekbasis is the victorious conclusion to every test God permits. You will be tested. You will have tribulation for 10 days. There's a finite limit. We don't know the limit, but God does. He knows exactly how many days, how many hours, how many minutes. He knows precisely when the test starts and when this test ends. And if it ends with your physical death, that's part of his plan too. So it's the race set before you. Walk it. Walk by faith. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. So there's reward for walking in faith up through the point of physical death. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. Remember, uh, Ephesus was the economic and cultural capital, but Pergamum was the political capital. And that political capital had a throne of Satan sitting in it. Keep this in mind if you live in Austin, Texas. We're a political capital. (laughs) And boy, does Satan have a seat here. And you hold fast my name. And did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my martyr, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So we have these examples. Antipas, well, we'll get to meet him when we're in heaven. And what a joy that's going to be to meet all the martyrs. Be faithful until death. Chapter 12 and verse 11, also in Revelation. Revelation 12, 11. When the Antichrist is giving out marks everywhere and then there's consequences for not taking the mark of the beast and uh, believers are being hunted down and killed for their faith. This is all coming up in the Great Tribulation after the rapture. And uh, so a loud voice in heaven says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. There's a moment, I think it's at the midpoint of the tribulation, where Satan is expelled from heaven and he no longer has access to go up there and make those accusations he likes to make. He gets kicked out. It's his final uh, expulsion from heaven. But uh, he accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. They did not love their life even when faced with death. You know, if if they're going to threaten your physical life based upon your love for Jesus Christ, are you going to recant? Are you going to deny your Lord? Are you going to be like Peter and deny the Lord? Or do you love Jesus more than you love your own life? That's the principle that we see here in this verse. They did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. 
then we get some privacy for the marriage supper and the other blessings for the bride in heaven. But then uh, woe to the earth and uh, the sea because the devil has come down to you having great wrath knowing that he has only a short time. He's on the clock. It's the, it's the final week of judgment and it's the halfway point of that final week. And he knows. If, he, if he's going to win, he's still insane. Satan thinks he can beat God. All he has to do is prove God a liar one time. And uh, the quickest way he thinks to do that is to exterminate the Jewish people. Because <clears throat> if there are no Jewish people, then God's a liar because he made eternal promises to the Jewish people. Chapter 17 and verse 14. And when we have uh, the beast and the false prophet and Satan himself, we have an anti-trinity. And we have uh, the beast with uh, the ten kings. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called the chosen and faithful. The chosen and faithful. What a blessing. We know who we serve. So there's a better resurrection and greater rewards for greater faithfulness. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We don't want to see the loss of reward for, well, this is what you were supposed to do, but someone else now has taken your crown because you were faithless. You did not hold fast what you had, what you had been given. The accolade of world unworthiness it's a tremendous accolade. And I think it's, uh, we've got a parallel here in Romans eight eighteen, men of whom the world was not worthy. In Romans 8, not a direct quotation or anything, but clearly it's, uh, I think there's a, a, a link. In things that are worthy and things that are not worthy. These heroes of faith. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So the testing we go through, not worthy to be compared. The glory that we will receive. And so in the same way, as we contrast our present sufferings with our future glory, in the same way, we can contrast our present world and these heroes that are walking by faith. These heroes that honored the Lord by walking by grace through faith in the scripture they'd been given. And, uh, you know, this planet doesn't deserve to have them walking on it <laughs> when it comes down to it. In a lot of ways, this creation, as it's groaning, is groaning, waiting for the revelation of the sons of, of uh, God. And that also is here in um, Romans chapter 8. Verse 19 says, the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. This world was cursed, you know, when Adam sinned and it's been under a curse ever since. And uh, the only relief this world gets is every now and then a righteous believer will, will walk the earth and walk by faith and, and the world gets a little taste of what it can look forward to. Because remember, according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so the creation itself was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What a world this is going to be when it's filled with righteousness, when it's only believers, when all the unbelievers are removed. And of course, the new earth will never know an unbeliever. But in the millennium, after the tribulation, every unbeliever is removed. And the millennium starts with 100% saved people. What a, what a blessing for the creation. No wonder things are restored to pre-flood uh, conditions. No wonder the lion can lie down with the lamb and other things that happen in the millennial kingdom because creation will be blessed in the presence of righteousness. And so uh, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. If you want to be an environmentalist, I don't have a problem being an environmentalist, just be a biblical environmentalist. And uh, cut out the fornication, cut out the bloodshed, cut out the unrighteousness, cut out the sin, the rampant sin. Start evangelizing unbelievers. 
this is my program for environmental blessing, okay? And I didn't make it up. I'm getting it from the Bible. That it's the, it's the wickedness that defiles the land. All right. So this idea of world unworthiness. And so think about these things. As, as Corinthians says, as unknown yet well-known. And I think that's the paradox. As unknown the world in the world system, there's not many mighty, not many famous, but we're well known in God's record keeping. And uh, you think about it, and the uh, the blessings there. The day that uh, Princess Diana died is the the day that my uh, childhood pastor's wife also died, and uh, of course she got no newspaper coverage, <laughs> no TV, no uh, no remembrances back years later. But Dorothy Jensen went to be with the Lord on the very same day that that uh, Princess Diana um, hopefully went to be with the Lord. I don't know if she was saved or not. But when she departed physical life, that car crash, of course, we've got all the media coverage and all the fame and all the glory and all the accolades and all the rest of that. But let me tell you, when Dorothy Jensen stood before Jesus Christ, she heard, well done, good and faithful servant. And, and a real hero. So men of whom the world is not worthy, that's fine. The totality of these witnesses, the totality of, this, of, these, of these witnesses is building toward the ultimate such witness, that is, the man of sorrows. The totality, all of chapter 11, is going to give way to chapter 12. And having such a great cloud of witnesses, we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith. And while we're edified by reading Old Testament stories of of martyrdom and Old Testament stories of suffering and Old Testament walks of faith, you can read Hebrews 11 a thousand times over and memorize every story that's in there and grow and be edified. But all of those together combined are still nothing, a drop in the bucket pointing towards our Savior. And he is the ultimate, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And so we talk about experiencing the mockings and the scorn and the being ill-treated and all these other things. Well, look at his description. Man of sorrows acquainted with grief. I come here a lot. I read, I look, mostly I read it in communion services. I go to uh, Isaiah 53 with some frequency, not every time. Because he was uh, despised and forsaken of men. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. People didn't look at Jesus and go, ooh, right? They weren't looking to him like, ooh, you know, women thinking, ooh, he's so handsome, or men thinking, ooh, I wish I was him. They weren't looking at this guy as if he was impressive to look at. He was despised and forsaken, a man of sorrows, intimate with grief, is how I like to translate. Not just acquainted with grief, intimate with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face. He was the kind of guy when people saw him, they would look the other way. Oh, that guy again despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. If you carry a lot of sorrow for a lot of time, it, it shows. Very depressed people, uh, it's, it's evident over time that uh, they're carrying a lot of weight on their shoulders. Imagine carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders because he's accepting the, the shame of the entire human race. You think that had an effect on his countenance, on his appearance? Finally here, verses 39 and 40. The us versus them contrast. Old Testament saints died in faith waiting for the fulfillment of promise. It says, these all died in faith. All these died in faith. 
And if you back up to verse 13, you're going to see that in that example with Abraham and then down to verse 39 where it applies to everybody. In verse 39 it says, all these having gained approval, having obtained a testimony through their faith. So they obtained a testimony. The Father saw it, He spoke of it, it's written in Scripture. They obtained a testimony of their faith. Still did not receive what was promised. Every Old Testament saint died without seeing the kingdom arriving. The promise is still future. And so they didn't see it in their lifetime. That's what's stressed back in verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them by faith, having welcomed them from a distance. Remember, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. So they died in faith waiting for fulfillment of promise. It doesn't make the promise any less. They, they died in faith. Their children then would carry on. They would die in faith. Their children would carry on. They would die in faith. Generation after generation after generation knowing that God is faithful. From generation to generation He's faithful. The us and the they are perhaps the most important words of this whole chapter. God has provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. When you're looking at verse 40 and you see there's an us and a them, pay attention. And if you encounter people that want to try to lead you in replacement theology, stop them and this would be a good verse to take them to. And say, stop it right there, you're confusing us and them. You're confusing Israel and the church. You're confusing Old Testament believers who die in faith without receiving the promise. And you're confusing them with New Testament believers who walk by faith and have already received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Remember, Israel was a forward-looking stewardship waiting for a coming promise. The church is an upward-looking stewardship that by grace through faith already receives everything that's been promised. We have eternal life now. We have every spiritual blessing now. So there's a huge contrast. And the us and they is a clear distinction between New Testament and Old Testament saints placing their resurrection destiny in contingent relationship to our resurrection destiny. They do have a resurrection on the way, but we have ours first. And that order is critical. Jesus, the first fruits, after that, those who are His at His coming. We have a resurrection and a judgment before Israel will ever be resurrected and receive what they've got coming to them. Because we have to be seated on the thrones to give them what they're going to get. And until we're seated on the thrones, they can't get what they're going to get. I'm hoping this makes sense. I'm tying together a little bit of what last hour was about. But there's other studies that we did in the book of Daniel, for example. When you're looking at empty thrones in Daniel chapter 7, and you're looking at occupied thrones in Revelation chapter 20, you realize something's happened in between. And it's called the church. It's called a new creation. It's called the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the fullness of Him who fills. The fullness of Christ. We are the fullness. And so these studies, if nothing else, you can see, apart from us, they would not be made perfect. I mean, that says what it says. And, and if, we t- if we need time to process that and totally theologically um, break that down in a way that, that, that we can explain to others that, as it says on the slide, their resurrection destiny is in a contingent relationship to our resurrection destiny. Understand what contingent means. It means it's connected to something else and dependent upon it. It's contingent upon it. Some things are contingent upon other things. Even as a matter of law, some things are contingent upon other things. And if one thing changes, then this other thing changes. See? Anyway, there's, uh, there's connections, there's links. 
<laughs> People don't realize that a lot of the reasons why unions are very supportive of the raising of the minimum wage is because many union contracts are contingent upon a connection to what that minimum wage is. And so they don't, they're not minimum wage workers, but their union contract is indexed based upon its contingent to the, the minimum wage. That's what contingent means. Now Israel's resurrection and the resurrection, their resurrection destiny is contingent to our resurrection destiny. And until the bride is raptured and resurrected and glorified and purified at the, at the judgment seat of Christ and dressed uh, as the spotless bride and returning with Jesus at Armageddon, Israel can't have their resurrection glory. Because apart from us, they cannot, would not be made perfect. Father, I thank you for this class and I thank you for these verses and I thank you for this chapter. And as we turn the year and turn the page to chapter 12, Father, thank you for fixing our eyes on Jesus, the ultimate in suffering, in faith, of whom the world is not worthy, the ultimate hero who by his death perfected us all. I pray that we continue to learn these lessons and continue to process that uh, there's more than just Bible stories that we learn and and think, wow, it's kind of neat that Daniel survived a night in the lion's den. There is theological impact that connects to us today So I pray that we uh, appreciate it and live it out in a very real way. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.